Welcome to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. An earthquake has hit the lineup over at Fox News, my friends. I'm sure many of you have seen it, but you've got to see the whole thing to really believe that it's happening. Uh, Bill O'Reilly, the biggest name in conservative uh, conservative television, is out at Fox News. Um, he has been there for decades. Uh, I'm sure many of you listening have watched countless nights of uh, the O'Reilly Factor, and he is he is out. It is just two and a half weeks after the New York Times published its investigation into payouts that were made, I believe it was five in total, uh, uh, with $13 million, yeah, five women, $13 million for Bill O'Reilly's conduct. Uh, The shift, in case you haven't already seen this, this has been announced as well, means that uh, Tucker Carlson will be on in the O'Reilly slot, 8 p.m., an incredible rise. Tucker's been in the game a long time. Some of you are like, yeah, isn't he the, yeah, Carl, Tucker Carlson from Crossfire. Um, back in the day, maybe, gosh, I remember watching that 15 or 16 years ago, maybe. It was it was a while ago. Uh, Tucker was a host of Crossfire, and then he went to Fox and Friends on the weekend. And then he got moved into Megyn Kelly's, uh, Megyn Kelly's time slot, and now he is... In the 8 p.m. Fox News tent pole position, uh, he's the guy who is in the center of the lineup. He's batting. What is it? Batting cleanup is that number four, right? That's what it is when you're batting cleanup. I, my baseball analogies are not are not really my thing. Uh, so O'Reilly goes to 8 p.m. The five, the panel show, very popular panel show, will go from five to nine p.m. Uh, and Eric Bowling gets his own show on Fox News at 5 p.m. Martha McCallum will stay permanently at the 7 p.m. spot. So big shifts have happened, big change up over at Fox News. And there are a couple of thoughts that I brought, broadly speaking, a few thoughts I want to share with you on all this. I'm not somebody who went to journalism school. Uh, those of you who listen to the show probably know because I talk about it occasionally, and I think it's even in some of our our intros. Uh, I went right into the CIA out of school and found my way into media mostly because I l- really loved reading the various conservative journals out there and, and op-ed pages and was an avid Fox News watcher even in college when that wasn't what the that wasn't what the cool kids were doing in college. I used to watch Fox News. I would, you know, I would turn on Bill O'Reilly, and friends of mine would go, "Oh, what are you doing?" Hey, hey, it's Mr. O'Reilly speaking. I don't want to hear any of that nonsense. Um, but I, I'm not somebody who thought that I'd be in this position of doing media and radio, and so I come at this with a slightly 
different perspective, I think, than a lot of the folks who have been in the game for a long time, and this is all they've ever wanted to do. Uh, first, I think we will see something that that is not especially... Uh, I, I can't comment on the... And when I say I can't comment, it's not like when people ask me CIA-related questions, and I'm like, I, I can't comment on that, because... You know, legally, can't can't do that. But I mean, I can't comment. I mean, it's not possible because I don't know uh, the truth uh, of any of the claims made against him. Although there was a claim years ago where I think the payout was nine million dollars. And I'm look, I'm a I'm a fan of the of the factor. Have been a watcher, not in recent years, but I was in college and afterwards when I was at the CIA. Uh, but you don't pay nine million dollars unless something is up. That's that's fair to say. This is just this again. I'm keeping it real. Uh, so there was an issue there uh, about the other suits. I don't know. I can't. I can't speak to them. And Mr. O'Reilly, through a lawyer, I know is defending, uh, defending his reputation vociferously. And I assume he will come out as well and speak about this. Although I don't know what the exit package has in store for him from Fox. Roger Ailes was out and got forty million dollars on his way out. So this is an interesting time shall we say at Fox News but a couple a couple of things of this one uh we will find soon I, there are people that are, are friends of mine I've been getting texts and phone calls about this all day oh can you believe it what's going to happen oh Fox is collapsing uh, Fox is popular well for a number of reasons but one of the reasons that Fox News has been as much of a juggernaut in the ratings for as long as it has been is that it serves a need it serves a purpose the other channels are all variations of left of center, right? The other channels are all, they go from Clinton, cronyist establishment, Democrat, or, you know, o- o- Obama progressive, all the way to Sanders socialist, depending on the channel we're talking about. But half the country, roughly speaking, isn't, isn't in any of those camps. And so when you offer up a cable news channel that speaks more um, more the language of that other half of the country in terms of politics that that can see things from their perspective. It's going to be successful. This is not complicated. And people will say, oh, well, it's the, the market should mean that there are even more conservative channels. I, I can tell you, having worked at The Blaze for years, which started off uh, as GBTV and it, it then turned into The Blaze TV and I was on a panel show there and uh, we were doing very, very well, um, and the show was uh, the the channel was growing quickly, but we ran into political hurdles with the realities of getting on to broad uh, broad spectrum cable. Cable distributors don't need you, and yeah, maybe you have an audience, maybe you'd make the money, but they don't want the headache necessarily of putting you on if you're a channel that is right of center, if you're a conservative channel, they may not want to deal with the angry emails and the boycotts. And that's uh, part of the concern that I have here is that once once again, we see with O'Reilly, the left was able to put this into motion, but put that on hold. This Through boycotts and hit pieces in the press, they were able to put this into motion. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't do bad things, and I'm not saying one way or the other, I'm not casting aspersions, nor am I trying to justify. I'm just saying that keep in mind the left put this in motion. But what we'll find out, and I'm going to return to that in a second. There's there's a lot. We're going to spend some time this hour on this. This is a big deal. I mean, for those of you listening, I'm sure many of you have been watching Fox for years and years. And O'Reilly has been a fixture 
There's a relationship that as a viewer, as an audience member, uh, you develop with shows and with hosts and there's an expectation. Um, I would even say on, on radio, there's a bond. Um, you, if you love this, what you love about this business is you love your audience, really. You love the people that support you and that believe in you and that do what you're doing. I know that's how I feel. And there's also, from the other side of it, a connection that I felt to people that are doing a show that I really appreciate or that I listen to or that I watch. Uh, whether listening to radio for years, which people ask me, how do you, how do you learn talk radio? Well, I, I listened for a long time, figured out who was good, what they do that's good, and uh, decided to give it a go myself. And, and here I am. Uh, but with O'Reilly stepping down, I know there are people who are, con- who are concerned about what the future of conservative media on the, on the TV side will be. And I think, and this is not in any way uh, to undermine the rating success that O'Reilly has had, uh, but the platform, the Fox platform is incredibly powerful because it is the only place you can go on TV and forget about see a conservative point of view. There are, you know, Shep Smith is not a conservative. Greta Van Susteren was not a conservative. They have made, they have headlining primetime shows. At least they have had. And Shep is still on, I think, at four or five. Uh, people who are by no means conservative. But it's not a, a party line Democrat station across the board. So if you don't want that and you can't if you watch any of the broadcast uh, or the broadcast channel cbs abc nbc what you're getting is mainstream democrat orthodoxy in one form or another sometimes more clever in how they hide it but it's still there it is left of center propaganda and as i said it does skew from the you know the utilitarian cronyist crony capitalist clinton brand of democrat all the way to the sandernista bernie sanders left Fox is not that. And so if you want something that is not that, you go to Fox. So the Fox platform is incredibly powerful and will continue to be. Uh, when Megyn Kelly left Fox News, M- Megan was the only uh, primetime host at Fox who had me on before I went over to CNN for a couple of years, had me on on a, on a regular basis um, for a whole bunch of reasons that I could get into perhaps another time. So I never met Bill O'Reilly as much as I've spent time at Fox and I was in Fox early on Monday for a few shows, a couple shows this week. I never met Bill. I never did his show. Uh, everyone I know pretty much in the business has met him and, and has done a show, but just, you know, I, I know um, Sean well. I've filled in for Sean on his radio show. Uh, can't say enough good things about Sean, I, but I know him. I, I don't know Bill at all. Never met him, never even talked to him. Which is, I think he's the only person in the Fox News, which is, I know, I'm sitting here talking about Bill O'Reilly, how he's left. I'm speaking to you as a viewer of The Factor, which I think gives me a level of objectivity with all of this. I'm speaking to you as somebody who, in college, would see Bill O'Reilly, and I, and I understand, and by the way, there are those who will say, oh, he's a, he's a, with the other Fox personalities, I have, I know them personally, and it would be harder for me to be objective, because I, I tend to be uh, you know, fond of them personally and professionally, but with O'Reilly, I'm just, I'm just a viewer. I'm just a factor. What is, I don't even know. What does he call the, I forget what he calls a, uh, a factoid. What do you, what do you, if you watch the show, uh, a factor? I don't know. He, I don't I, I'm forgetting right now what, what the name of people who watch the factor are, but I was one, I was used to watch the factor. So he's out. 
Um, the Fox News platform is powerful. Tucker took over for Megan. Uh, Megan's now at what NBC and making a gazillion dollars and going to be very, very famous over there. Uh, Tucker took over for her, has been beating Megan's show in the ratings. This shouldn't be as surprising as some people think it is, because let me tell you, there are many more talented, conservative uh, pundits, writers, journalists, anchor men and women, you know, whatever we're talking about here. Conservative media actually has a very deep bench. We have very few places to exercise our craft. There are not a lot of options, not a lot of outlets. And I come to you from one of the from one of the upstarts originally with with the blaze with Glenn Beck. And I am forever grateful to Glenn for putting me in the game, you know, for being the coach that pulled me off the stands and said, hey, another baseball analogy. Put on a helmet. Here's a bat, kid. Get in the game. You know, give me a pat on the back and send me in there. And so far, so good. But there are very few options to to do that. And I was just lucky and and worked really hard. <laughs> but there are very few places where you can get that opportunity. Fox is going to be fine, I guess, is one way of um, summarizing what I'm trying to say. Fox will be fine. And some of you probably don't even like Fox that much. I don't know. Most of you, I'm guessing, are, are Fox uh, watchers in some capacity because of the crossover between talk radio and Fox News. Why is there that crossover? Because there's only a couple of places where you can go to get analysis and politics, uh, uh, an- <laughs> analysis of politics, to get politics, to get the analysis there, where you're not getting mainstream Democrat stuff. Talk radio, that's why you're hearing me right now, and Fox News. And there are a few, there are some other places, there's some other channels that are are making inroads and trying to do well. I mean, the, uh, you know, the, the Blaze TV is still going and, and there are others. Uh, but, I, I just want to say Fox will be fine. What we'll find out very quickly, I think, is that the ratings will dip very little, if at all, with Tucker in the 8 p.m. slot. He's going to do really well. And what feels unsettling right now, because unlike with Democrats, we, we don't have many places. We, we don't have a lot of homes. So when all of a sudden the, 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 the biggest name, the biggest personality on the channel goes, people might think, oh, no, what's going to happen here? Is conservative media in trouble? I'm here to tell you I don't think it's in trouble at all. Uh, O'Reilly had decades of tremendous success. He paved the way. I never met him, don't know him, but I think of him the way that, you know, one of the all-stars in any sport uh, would be thought of by the, you know, up-and-coming rookie. Um, and that's, that's I think it's going to be fine. I really do. You're not going to see much of a, a change uh, or a shift in the ratings there. Tucker is whip-smart and is going to be great. Um He's already being read on 9 p.m. So and I think some of the other uh, some of the other changes they're making also make a lot of sense. I look at their lineup, and oftentimes I disagree with media executives on what they do. I look at the Fox changes in the lineup, and I'm like, that's that's all. Those are all very wise moves. So, um, but I want to talk about the leftist side of this, which does trouble me a little bit. Apart from whether or not O'Reilly was acting in a way that was inappropriate or not, I leave that to others to adjudicate and address. But this may, that make, what makes me uncomfortable is not that there's change at Fox News. It's how the change came about. Um, worth talking about a little bit. We'll do that on the flip side. Oh, what do you think about O'Reilly being out? Everybody. I mean, come on. You've got to have opinions on this, everybody. What do you think about O'Reilly leaving? What do you think about the replacements? 844-900-2825. 844-900-2825. The change at Fox. Light them up. We'll be right back. 
You know, I really do want it to be a, a conversation uh, team this hour on on O'Reilly and Fox and what's going on there, what it means for conservative media. It's a big deal to us. We only have one. We only have one cable news channel. We're, we're not like the Democrats who have so many that it's it's hard to keep track. Um, so I can see a lot of you are lighting up the lines. I appreciate that. Um, 844-900-2825. You call in. We'll, uh, if you can be patient with us, we'll get you in this hour. Um, let's take uh, Ann in Virginia on the iHeart app. What's up, Ann? Hello, Mr. Sexton, the most intelligent person on the radio. Thank you so much. No, you are. I appreciate that. So what's on your mind, Ann? Regarding O'Reilly, okay, it has nothing to do with sex. It has to do with his age. He has this pelican throat, you know, and they're getting rid of him because he's too old. So you think they're, this is their way of, uh, what, uh, putting him putting him aside because they didn't want to deal with telling him that he was done? I, I, I don't know. I think that maybe they use the New York Times report as an excuse uh, but then again, they just signed him even recently to a deal. I, I think they didn't want to, I, I think they probably just didn't want to handle the pressure. And especially, it was one thing to stand by O'Reilly uh, before Ailes resigned under pressure. But with Ailes resigning under pressure, there's a cascade effect here where they're just not going to, they're not going to make exceptions and allowances. You know, I think people forget sometimes, you know, the Murdoch's, Oh, the Murdochs actually called the shots. Even even when Ailes was running the place, the Murdochs, uh, Rupert Murdoch and his sons, called the shots. So they're they're changing things up. Because hmm. look, he's these guys never. I mean, Larry King still thinks that he's the only person that can do an interview. He's like, "Bring me back. I need back in the game," you know. And and it's like, nah, man. There are other people that actually can do your job. And you had a great long run. Bill O'Reilly had a fantastic run and and has made probably hundreds of millions of dollars uh, and was very important to the Republican Party for a long time. Let's be honest about it. Uh, so I, I, I think that this is not the way he wanted it to end, but in media, it rarely ends the way you want it to end. So not uh, not all that surprising. But and thank you for your kind words and thank you very much for calling in. Um, Bob in North Carolina, WPTI. Hi, good evening, Mr. Sexton. Good evening, sir. Yes, good evening, sir. Well, you know, Bill O'Reilly, I've been listening to, watching him uh, on and off uh, since I got, since, well, I guess the 80s, right? Yeah, a very intelligent commentator, but now another one bites the dust with this uh, sexual harassment thing. Uh, have his accusers come forward? No. Now, we have we had Bill Clinton as our president. Anybody pals before him, but he gets a pass, right? He gets a pass from the liberal media. Because he was who he was, and uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, they're gonna come out with some more, more in-depth uh, information, just that uh, he was involved with uh, sexual harassment or what, or maybe he just had a deal behind the scenes, or he's had enough, or they had enough of him. I'm sure there's but a lot I, of I'm sure there's a lot of factors that went into the decision. Um, but the, the the boycott, as I understand it is a bit overstated. Some of them were advertisers that weren't even on the show. They were they were more or less coming out to say, we wouldn't advertise on his show. Well, you know, I, I, when, when you're at that level, someone's saying they wouldn't advertise on your show. I mean, the, the O'Reilly factor was making huge money. Um, but, Bob, you, you raise an interesting point. Let me talk more about it on the other side of the break. Thank you for calling in. Shield tie, sir. 844-900-2825. The earthquake over at Fox. What do you think about it? Taking some more calls and more talk coming up. 
Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. JJ in Virginia, WPTI. You're on, sir. What's up? Hey, Buck. How you doing? I appreciate the work you've done for Sean and Glenn in the past. Thank you. Uh, glad you got this show. Um, just just want to remind that, you know, just because Bill has, has settled you know, the, these cases in the past out of court and whatnot doesn't mean it's really a mission of guilt and that it should be viewed that way. But the, the bigger thing I'm concerned about is um, the left getting some validation that their tactics work in terms of boycotts, threats of boycotts, demonstrations that I see the, the media playing that up and, and, and fanning the flames and, and just increasing that, uh, that rhetoric going forward. Uh, that, that's my, I have that concern, too. Irrespective of uh, what Bill O'Reilly may or may not have, have done in each of these cases, and we, we don't know the details of most of them, I think. We know a lot of details of the first one with the producer who got uh, a $9 million settlement, and then I know there are some others. In fact, that one came out even yesterday. I'm not even sure it was one. It wasn't one of the payout cases, but it was another allegation. It seemed kind of thinly sourced to me, but... Uh, it's look. It's there's a lot of stuff that happens uh, just from the from the perspective of how this plays out. Uh, once uh, once you have a tar- someone like O'Reilly and there's one settlement for some others, uh, it's an opportunity to come forward if they think they were wronged. But there also are those who will come forward and just look for a payday, right? I mean, and and Fox may have tried to make some of those go away um, by paying someone off instead of going through a protracted legal battle, but. It's it's also concerning to me that the New York Times runs a story, and it's a message. Uh, it's a message to conservatives and media that I know some are going to say, "Oh well, uh, you know, impropriety cannot be tolerated on our side." And there's a little bit of a Schadenfreude going on right now from my fellow conservative media folks. Some of them uh, that I find a little unbecoming. Um, I I don't celebrate the downfall of. Uh, of anybody in, in this business uh, because it's such a fickle, nasty business and the stresses everyone's under are tremendous and it's, you know, it's here today, gone tomorrow, and you just never want to be in the position of, you know, dancing on someone else's grave, uh, career grave, you know, but uh, the left put this all into motion, right? The New York Times wrote this piece, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. It goes to remind everybody that the media echo chamber is still dominated by the left and if they want to come after someone they can get to that person they can create a problem remember we keep talking about this the first sexual harassment suit was what nine years ago ten years ago so that's a long time ago right i think one thing we need to look at is um you know o'reilly wasn't going to be there forever and we've been lucky that Rush has been there as long as he has, but they're both going to go away. But I think you're right; the, the conservative bench is pretty deep. Yeah, you're gonna you'll see this, and uh, and this will be. I think this will be welcome for a, for a lot of folks in the in the uh, weeks and months ahead who watch Fox and uh, Bill Shields. Hi, man. Thank you for calling in from Virginia. Uh, yeah, I mean, the first Fox show that ever had me on ever uh, was Red Eye, which unfortunately got canceled recently. I love that show. That show was so much fun. It was a great show. I, I feel like it, ne- you know, it had a loyal fan base, but it never got the, well, because it was on at three o'clock in the morning. Never really got uh, the uh, the uh, approval, approbation, success that it deserved. Because I think that show 
was every bit as funny as as the Daily Show, you know, on the right, or you know, as a show on the right. And uh, but Greg uh, Greg Gutfeld, who's now on the Five, uh, you know, he, he he would he hosts his own show. I know on Saturdays, but he, he's really smart and has a lot of insights, and it's funny. And uh, you you go down the list, and you know, Tucker obviously is now the 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 big dog over there. I mean, he's number he's in uh, the eight p.m. slot, but. The host, they have a they have a ton. They have more really talented broadcasters at Fox, either as hosts now or contributors, than they have shows by a factor of you know four or five to one. So it's all going to be fine, is what I'm trying to say. And and I do think it's a helpful reminder um, for everyone, and it's it's a good lesson in humility that uh, even O'Reilly is replaceable. I, and right now, it may not feel that way for some people, but I don't mean replace. Of course, all of us are unique snowflakes, and O'Reilly's success and and his uh, part of being the Fox uh, the Fox phenomenon is not replaceable. But I just mean in terms of a show that has ratings and that will serve its purpose for conser- for conservatism or for right of center populism, however you want to define what the factor has been. I don't think you're going to see much of a change. I mean, look at the Kelly file. Kelly file was oh my gosh, look at the ratings. She's going to leave. What's going to happen? There's going to be this. There's going to be this uh, gap in the in the network, and Tucker came in, and the ratings were all fine. Uh, but back to the the leftist target, the Alinskyite freeze and destroy the target. Uh, this is concerning. E- e- even if O'Reilly did the things they said that he did, um, and I think in some there's there's a lot of smoke, folks, with some of it uh, for sure. Um, but e- even if he did the things. It still makes me uncomfortable that this is happening at the beck and call of the New York Times. That's what I'm trying to say. I still don't like that the Times was able to destroy one of ours because and this is a constant in in not just media and but it's in politics. It's in corporate America now. It's all over the place. The right we abandon our own when the, when the things get rough, we abandon our people. I know people say, "Oh, Buck, look at O'Reilly." Yeah, O'Reilly, they didn't abandon him, but he was like the most successful right-wing tv news personality in history uh so okay he, he got a pass but generally speaking we abandoned our own the left if you're on the right side of the political spectrum the left and the media and the echo chamber they'll they'll defend you they'll they'll keep you in the game they'll protect your reputation they'll rehabilitate your reputation even when you've done terrible things they you know you have the opportunity to have a comeback story if you're a democrat you have the opportunity to have a, a renaissance, a resurrection of your career if you're on the left. If you're on the right, they take you out and they make sure you stay out. That's how they play the game. Very disconcerting. Uh, one of the previous callers just mentioned mentioned Rush uh, before, whom, again, you know, we're going down this list of people. I, I, I've never met Rush. I am eternally grateful to Rush for allowing me to sit in on the EIB as many times as I did. And it's one of the ways I got to know uh, many of you, and many of you have now joined me on this show, uh, Rush, Glenn, Sean, I filled in for all of them on radio. The only one I, I don't know personally is is Rush, but they've come, I even forget sometimes how much they have, they came after him. And I don't just mean writing mean editorials, that just doesn't even, that doesn't even matter to him. But I mean, it tried to get him, uh, you know, they try to investigate him and they harass him on taxes or they'll, you know, they'll do anything. It's just insane. Um, and we we don't stand up for ours. And it's we have a little bit on the right of a 
Well, you know, we're like the dean of the high school, and we always obey all the rules. And when somebody steps out of line, we need to hold them accountable. Look, I get that, right? I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to advocate here for a a bacchanal and a free for all in conservative media, but I, I do think that we should give people a break. That they should be people should be allowed to make a mistake or two here or there, and if they're sorry and you know they've had a good career and they mean well. Now with O'Reilly, I don't know. I mean, five—that's a lot of—that's a lot of suits. Was it one? Was it one or two times where he really crossed the line, or was it you know five? And actually, it's more than that. I, I don't know, um, and I don't know Bill at all personally, so I really can't uh, weigh in. I've never met, the, never even talked to the guy, never been on a show. Um, which, again, it's the only one at five. It's kind of weird as I sit here thinking about this. He's the one that I think I watch the most on TV, and he's the only major personality at Fox News that I haven't had a lot of contact with or, you know, I haven't haven't inter- haven't worked with or um, so anyway, he's out. But the leftist machine, man, it is it can get you. It can get any of us. And it's really just a question of do the only thing that can protect uh, somebody on the right in the public eye from the search and destroy tactics of the uh, progressive media industrial complex uh, is if the audience, if if supporters stay with the person, that's it. Because you can't count. We don't have enough of a megaphone in the, in the media. Look, not even a rally. Don't have enough of a megaphone to fight back effectively in the propaganda war. It's just a question to the, does the audience stay with you? All right. Now a lot of you are calling and I'm, I'm going on and on here. Alan in Florida, WFLF. What's up? Hey, Buck. I just got to say, I'm, I'm sick and tired of, there is no level that they won't stoop to destroy a, a man or a woman's character. And that I think this is just another, and I hate to minimize anything, but it seems to be just another character assassination. You know, I think you, you've got somebody at CNN named Don Lemon that goes out and does debauchery, not even privately, publishes it on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and he's touted as this great genius that is the new face of CNN. And, uh, you know, you talk about Rush. I remember when they tried to destroy him when he got addicted to painkillers. He came out and uh, said, this is my situation. I have become addicted to painkillers because of my back. And if he hadn't had his own uh, deal, he'd be gone. Sean's, I think Sean's only protection is his integrity in his his life, uh, because you know that they're always after him, and it's it's just wrong. It's wrong to destroy a man or a woman's character or their, un, you know, like uh, me said. Yeah, I've been exonerated, but he's going to give me back my character and my good name. Yeah, I uh, I, I agree that it's it's very disconcerting. The frequency and the ferocity with which the left, uh, for political reasons, tries to tries to ruin people and, and really enjoys um, marinating in their in their anguish in their agony once they've destroyed someone. And look, they have they haven't really they haven't destroyed O'Reilly. He, you know, he, he had a great run. He probably was going to stop in a few years anyway. Let's be realistic about it. And it it, it was. Not necessarily his time to stop, but he was. I I don't actually know offhand how how old he is, but. Uh, do you know? I don't even know. I should I should look that up. Uh, but I mean, he's he's pushing it at, to the point where look, he he had a great run, and in the media business, everybody's replaceable, and everybody, um, 
you know, everybody has contributions to make when they do, and then it's it's time to maybe think about other things. I'm sure you're going to find that Bill is spending a lot of time, uh, you know, fly fishing and helping wounded veterans, right? He's probably going to have leisure time and be able to do uh, charitable, good uh, good work in his in his free time, which he'll have more of now. I- I'm guessing he won't go to another channel or anything, but, you know, I, I don't know. You never know. You know, look at, Larry, like I said, Larry King before, you know, it's like, uh, I've seen Larry King. I'm like, he's still doing this? And he's on some channel I've never heard of. He's like, hey, here I am, you know, Larry King is back. And you're like, really? It's Aren't you like 112? Why, why are you back? I, you know, anyway. Um, so we'll see, man. But uh, Alan, I hear you on that. It, it is. It is. I'm sorry. Go ahead, and then, and then I got to go to break. What were you saying? It's all about their good name. You know that you can't get that back. No, I hear you. I hear you. That's that's a part. Of, look, that's you can be worth all the money in the world, but if you feel like your reputation has been unfairly besmirched or your your character has been maligned, uh, that's that still matters. Still matters a lot, especially to somebody of character and integrity. That's really all that matters. Uh, but Alan Shields, hi, man. Thank you for calling in from Florida. Uh, if you're on hold or calling in right now and see the board still lit up, we will try to get you in on the flip side of the break. So just be patient with me. And uh, then we'll get into the politics of the day and such in the next hour. But uh, Team Buck, 844-900-2825. Big shakeup over at Fox. What do you think? We'll be right back. O'Reilly is out. New Folks getting big jobs, big positions, or really just getting into bigger slots, time slots over at Fox. A lot of you have thoughts on this, I know. Let's get to some of them. Mitch in North Carolina, WPTI once again. What's up, Mitch? Hey, how you doing today, Buck? First time caller. Thank you so much for calling, sir. I'm good. Uh, doing pretty good. You know what? you got to ask yourself, how many times do people drink and drive before they're caught? Or how many times are you speeding before you get caught? You know, I think I think the laundry list of uh, accusations against Bill probably is a lot more than those who came to the surface. You know, some some victims are probably embarrassed, don't want to get the media attention. And you know, this has been going on. I remember about ten, fifteen years ago when uh, they had a. It only was in the news for about a couple of days, but uh, 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 Bill O'Reilly. They talked about him sexting or he's having trouble, you know, uh, phone sex, you know. But that, that, that issue went away rather quickly. So uh, I think, you know, that the ones you see are the ones that... Uh, so you think there's more. You're, you're saying you think that uh, womanizing or sexual harassing is, is habitual and uh, it is therefore, um, you know, this is a case where what we know about is just is just the tip of the iceberg. Well, that's what well, that's, 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 is that not what you're saying? That seems to me to be what you're saying. Well, now that he's going to leave the show, you know, these things, you know, these things sort of die down from the limelight, you know, just like that guy Weiner. I mean, you know, he has a problem. And I'm sure Bill O'Reilly, I mean, it's been going on for for decades. And, uh, you know, they, they cover their bases up there in Fox. And, uh, you know, it just uh, come to a head. I yeah, I, well, well, they 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 got uh, they got rid of him. Uh, that much that, that much is clear. He he's out. Uh, but Mitch, I got I got to move to the next caller. Shield time, man. Thank you for calling in, Ashley in Louisiana on the iHeart app. What's up, Ashley? Hey, Buck. Shield high. Shield high. I just want to make the comment like I'm not really that disappointed about Bill O'Reilly leaving, and I did watch him, but I am disappointed that his show's being replaced with Tucker Carlson. I just think it's cheap ratings. It's 
a show. It, it doesn't have much depth to it. I think it'll be and a different I just, show. It, I don't think he's going to continue to do the show. He's because he's he's not going to be in the. Uh, you know, he's not going to be the captain of the ship. He, he's not just going to be able to be the like the first mate or something. You know what I mean? He's going to be in a different spot, and I think that may shift the way. Because I agree. I mean, there there is a limited utility in having some dumb college kid on to get uh, you know verbally lambasted by Tucker every night. So exactly, I think they may change the way that the setup of the show. Uh, we'll see. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for the reassurance. All right, rock and roll. Thanks, Ashley. Matt in Pennsylvania, iHeart app. What's up, sir? Hey, I just wanted to talk about O'Reilly for a minute. Um, my take on this whole thing is if what he did was illegal or suable, as in civilly against the law, that he could have been sued or they can prove a case, then, yeah, they did the right thing to get him out. But if what he is is a womanizer, which is a guy that I don't necessarily respect for the way he wants to treat women, I don't know if he's married or not, he was. He's divorced now. Yeah. Yeah. If he's just hitting on these women and trying, you know, I don't see a problem with that. And that should be cleared up. Well, no, it, it, the allegation is that uh, Bill O'Reilly 67, by the way, I forgot before what his uh, age was. Um, the allegation is that he was using his position of authority in a company to try to um, induce women into, you know, sexual activity or of one kind or another that's that's what the allegations are around at least in some cases um i mean you know with the come up to my hotel room because that's what this one woman's come out and said he, he said come up to my hotel room and i'll make you a fox contributor um is that true or not i don't know but you're not you're not supposed to do that if, if you know that that's not acceptable behavior and, and it's uh you are civilly liable uh, for that and that's why Look, they they didn't want to get rid of him. I don't. I mean, in terms of the, the safer financial choice, would have been to keep O'Reilly and just go forward. But um, and thank you for calling in, Matt. Uh, uh, but I will say, we have a deep bench in conservatism. I know so many brilliant conservatives, uh, honestly under fifty, who are just toiling away on websites or just doing a podcast. And uh, yes, Bill O'Reilly was from a broadcast perspective. Uh, a fantastic success and, and a pioneer, uh, but we are all very replaceable in this business. Fox is going to be just fine, and they're going to be able to replace Bill O'Reilly. We'll be right back. He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. We got McKay Coppins on the line, everybody. He is a staff writer at The Atlantic, author of The Wilderness, and once described by Donald J. Trump as, quote, sort of handsome. Good to have you on, McKay. I'm jealous of that quote. That's amazing. Uh, he's called me less nice things, too, but I choose to emphasize that one. <laughs> sort, sort of handsome. That's pretty amazing. Uh, so uh, let's get into your latest piece uh, on The Atlantic. Uh, we have Jason Chaffetz, powerful Republican congressman, or at least omnipresent on cable news. Not sure that's the same as powerful. But anyway, he says he is, he says he is stepping down, or not stepping down, I'm sorry, not running again. He's not running again. Right. Yeah. He, he announced uh, this morning that he will not seek reelection next year, uh, which came as a pretty big shock to Republicans in Washington and in Utah. I uh, spent the day kind of working the phones and talking to my sources. And from what I've heard, he did, he must have made this decision very recently, because up until basically 11 p.m. last night, uh, nobody in the party 
either in D.C. or, or uh, Utah knew that he was, he was making this decision. And, in fact, when I interviewed Chaffetz uh, a few weeks ago, he told me that he was planning to uh, serve out his six-year term as chairman of the House Oversight Committee, and, that, and suffice it to say, that is not happening now, apparently. Uh, there's some stuff out there about how he might run for governor of Utah. What do you make of that? Yeah, he told me that he's considering it, and he's told others that he's considering it. Um, and, and that was my initial thought when I saw that he was—he uh, decided not to run for re-election, that he wants to run for governor. I, I floated that by a few sources in Utah, and, and they're a little skeptical. Not that, not that he's not going to run, but they're skeptical because it seems like a strange decision to uh, forsake kind of a high-profile platform like the one that he has in the House. Uh, just so that he can start campaigning for an election that's two years away. That said, uh, you know, just to give you a little context about uh, what's happening in Utah in this current political climate, uh, Chaffetz has been under a lot of pressure. Uh, Utah is a kind of a strange state because it's very conservative, but Donald Trump is not very popular there. And he has faced a lot of pressure from his constituents, both uh, Democrats and Republicans, who feel that as oversight committee chairman, he's not doing enough to uh, investigate potential conflicts of interest and other uh, alleged scandals in the Trump administration. Uh, and so, you know, I think probably some people who, who follow politics saw, saw a couple months ago that Chaffetz was booed off the stage by angry constituents at a town hall in Utah. Uh, he, so he's under a lot of pressure Hundreds of thousands of dollars have been donated to various efforts to try to unseat him. And, and so, you know, if you take him at his word, what he says is that he just he's kind of done serving in, in Congress. He wants to step aside, make room for someone else and spend more time with his family. But certainly he's a, it, it, this is all happening at kind of a fraught political moment. Something of a commentary on politics today that uh, if that were if that is, in fact, the case, then I think that's really admirable and that's great. And I wish more people sure. uh, from all from in all kinds of positions would be like, you know, I'm just going to spend more time with my family and let somebody else get into the fight. But politicians <laughs> tend to be a narcissistic <laughs> to the to the yeah. point of abnormal uh, lot. So we'll have to see what ends well, up happening well, here. Uh, but I, speaking of politicians and those who followed closely, Georgia's sixth. Uh, they had that special mm-hmm. election and we know the outcome here. Um, Ossoff. Did not get the 50%, did not win. Karen, uh, uh, Karen Handel and him will face off in a runoff. Uh, what, what's, what is the, the so what of all this? Well, the, this race had been framed particularly by Democrats, uh, but also more broadly in the media as kind of a referendum on Donald Trump's presidency. This is a very conservative district, uh, but another conservative district that was uh, that, that is not super into Donald Trump. It's kind of a more affluent, educated suburban district uh, with a lot of Republicans who uh, who have kind of been turned off by Trump's presidency and his style of politics. So uh, a lot of Democrats had sort of pinned their hopes to this special election as a way to, uh, you know, energize their base and also to show that in the Trump era, Democrats have a chance at uh, taking back the House, taking back the Senate, winning districts that they never could have competed in otherwise. Um, as you said, though, uh, the, the candidate who is you know, 30 years old has no political experience. He did pretty well considering all that, but he did not clear the 50 percent threshold that he needed to avoid a runoff. 
And now that a runoff is going to happen and it's just him versus one Republican as opposed to him versus 18 Republicans, uh, it's going to be a much harder battle for him. And and it seems unlikely that he's going to win the seat. Uh, what's this about Reuters and a Putin-linked think tank and its plan to sway the 2016 election, by the way? I see this here in your Twitter feed. Yeah, that's an interesting Reuters story. It just came out a, a few hours ago. They found that a think tank that has links to Putin and to the Russian government had actually outlined a plan prior to the 2016 election, uh, outlined a plan to sway the American election and to undermine Americans' uh, uh, kind of faith in the electoral process. Now, you know, uh, I think we should take this report with a grain of salt. I'm sure that plan was outlined. I don't know if it was used by Putin or the Russian government as, you know, a, a battle plan or a step-by-step guide uh, in, in how they interfered with the United States election. But it it does seem uh, to be evidence that there was you know, real, this has been an idea that's floated around in Russian political circles and uh, intellectual circles for a while. McKay Coppins is at The Atlantic. You can check out his latest on theatlantic.com. He's also author of The Wilderness. McKay, appreciate you making the time. Thanks for coming by the Freedom Hut. Thanks for having me. Uh, Richard in West Virginia, WWVA. You've been on hold patiently, sir. What's up? Uh, as far as Bill O'Reilly, and I was telling the uh, person who answered the phone, this isn't like Bill Cosby. He did not drug these wet well, allegedly. I guess that's what Bill Cosby did. And, you know, put some psych uh, drugs in to maybe... Well, uh, Richard, Richard, hold on. No one, no one, no one is saying, even, even his most uh, dedicated and vengeful enemies, no one's saying that Bill O'Reilly sexually assaulted anybody or raped anybody that's not even talked that, that no one has alleged that no one says that that's the when you so so cosby is worlds away from uh from o'reilly on this or what they're talking about with o'reilly is workplace sexual harassment or sexual harassment involving employees of fox which is i know yeah right okay well i'm just well you said he's not bill cosby yeah we know that i mean bill cosby's been accused of dozens of rapes i mean this is a whole yeah this is like saying yeah. somebody that's you know somebody that's uh uh, I, I don't know. Run a run a stock scam is not a mass murderer. It's like these are not this. These are not similar situations. No, they're not similar at all. And that's the point I was trying to make. They aren't similar in any way, shapes, or form. I was just saying that uh, you know the man's sixty-seven years old. Uh, I guess he's not married, so you know he was just trying to, you know, what he was trying to do. But it's just like he didn't force them to do that. Well, he he was married, just to work on the facts, he was married for most of the time of, of the allegations and certainly was married 10 years ago. He he was divorced in the last couple of years, but yeah. Well, okay, but I mean, I don't think he should have got fired. The only way I can relate, personally, and naturally I'm not any celebrity or anything, but when I the job that I used to have, I used to go in the back to get some different things for customers, and a woman who was working with me would come back there and say to me, Hey, Richie, let's go upstairs for a quickie. And she did that probably six or seven times. I knew her husband. I told her, I said, you know, we can't do that. So finally, I just said, when she did, I said, let's go. And she said, I was just kidding. Well, uh, there's no way I could have reported her because they would just ignore me. So I don't know. I sort of think it's with Bill O'Reilly. I think this whole thing was overblown. I don't think he should have been fired. And that's just my opinion here in uh, Wheeling, West Virginia. All right, Richard, thank you for thank you for calling in. Um, as to the the rightness or the wrongness of the decision, there's a lot that goes into this, too. Uh, there's the issue of 
the the Fox News brand. You know, everyone who works there is a part of that brand on camera, off camera, all the employees. And even if what someone did is not, you know, the the worst the worst thing ever, uh, which I'm, of course it isn't when we're talking about the stuff that O'Reilly was accused of. Um, you know, you, you don't have it. You don't have an uh, an endless right, or you, you don't have tenure for a twenty million dollar a year anchor anchor job. I I, I got to tell you, you know, I think this is easy to forget because I've come at this before as a consumer of conservative media for many many years, and now I I work in the field and know a lot of these people. And uh, to have a job in this area is to be blessed. Uh, to have a job where you are able to live even as an adult and either write, be on TV or be on radio is to be successful in the field and beating the odds to be making $20 million a year. Uh, you, you do. There are some expectations that come along with that. I'm, I'm just saying, and he made that for a long time. So, you know, uh, if if I think it's a fair rule or a fair way to think about this, and it reminds me of the, one of my biggest objections uh, at the CIA and inside the government was that there was always an understanding that people at the people at the top of the power structure would get the benefit of the doubt or be treated differently than people lower down. And hey, look, government and dealing with sensitive information, classified information is different than being in, in the media. But if conduct can get a an associate producer, which is a pretty low on the totem pole uh, professional position at a, at a TV network. If Connick could get an associate producer fired, that conduct repeatedly over and over again for somebody who's a, a, a major part of the audience uh, facing front of the network. You know, that's that's not a, it's not a reasonable expect that somebody is going to be. Behaving in a professional fashion. Um, what, what did O'Reilly do or not do? I, I don't know. Uh, the $9 million suit a decade ago, as I understand it, um, you know, I, I, people said that there were audio tapes. I, I never heard them, so I don't know. No, no one's ever heard them, but that was the allegation at the time. Um, but I, I would have given him a, I would have given him the benefit of the doubt on that one, and I, and I did. Um, not meaning that he didn't do anything, but maybe, you know, look, the guy made a mistake. People can make mistakes. It happens. Uh, but once you get to five or six or seven, I mean, it looks like a pattern. It looks bad. But I also think that we don't need to be we, we should be aware of the propensity of the left to freeze and destroy people that they do not like and try to be on guard against that. But we also shouldn't mourn too much the end of the O'Reilly factor in the sense that, you know, look, Tucker, Tucker's going to hit it tomorrow. I mean, it's. Uh, this is, it might be an even better show now. You know, you don't know. You got to see. I have a feeling that everyone's going to find out that I know Fox will be just fine. And I think um, you'll see people that haven't really had the opportunity yet get opportunities to go big time at Fox and make their own contribution to news and analysis on a, on a day in and day out basis that is very valid. You know, people should get a shot. You don't have to be the highest paid guy in TV or one of the highest paid guys in TV for 30 years. And I think I think 20 or so is is a good run. Um, But of course, that's the perspective of a millennial. So we'll see. Eight, four, four, nine hundred buck. We will hit a quick break here. That's eight, four, four, nine hundred two, eight to five uh by the way also uh, go to bucksexton.com we'll be posting there on all the things we talk about on the show and tomorrow and i'll be writing and lots of fun stuff bucksexton.com the secretary of state 
Rex Tillerson had a rare appearance before the media earlier today talking about Iran. And now here, here's what's interesting about this. Uh, Tillerson had some harsh words for Iran just a few days after he said that Iran has so far met its obligations under the nuclear deal struck by the Obama administration. Of course, a lot of Democrats are going to point to that and say, oh, look, see, uh, it's all it's all going exactly according to plan. Obama's Iran deal was brilliant, brilliant statecraft. As I have pointed out to you, and I believe I was one of the first to publicly uh, get this going uh, on Twitter and elsewhere, um, the reality here is that the same people that are promising you today that the Iran deal will prevent the theocrats, the mullahs in Tehran, from getting nuclear weapons, which which they can threaten uh, all of our regional allies, uh, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, everybody, as well as the possibility, of course, of giving that technology or even perhaps a fully formed weapon to a rogue state or group, terrorist group. Um, the same people that promise you that Iran will never get the, that weapon or those capabilities were the ones who were promising until very recently that Syria had gotten rid of all of its chemical weapons. And now, because that looks so incredibly foolish and nonsensical, are telling us, oh, well, we always knew that Syria wasn't going to get rid of all of its chemical weapons. That's not what you said, and the lies are troubling. So on the Iran deal, uh, here is Tillerson, by the way, I, th- I think should get strong marks in the Secretary of State role. For me, the, the best choices of this Trump team are all on the, where it is now, there was a rocky start, but the, the best picks he has made are on the national security and international relations front. Uh, Tillerson as Secretary of State, Mattis at the Pentagon, and McMaster as National Security Advisor. Those are all very strong choices. Um, but Tiller- And Tillerson seems just like a no-nonsense guy who has been in the big game before, not for the government, but he has been in high-stakes negotiations. He understands how the world works. I think it's, I think it's great. We, we have gotten used to this idea that the Secretary of State should be a pinstripe suit-wearing, professorial, IR, international relations uh, geek, or, or a lifelong civil servant bureaucrat uh, who they all tend to have the same view of, of international relations, which is, uh, well, of course, going to be an internationalist perspective. Um, and many of them, because of the academies where they study those topics, uh, whether you're talking about the Fletcher School at Tufts, very famous international relations. I mean, I know all of these because of my time in, in the government and the people that you come across, whether it's in the Intel Division, the NYPD or elsewhere. Uh, Fletcher School or a School of uh, Foreign Service, the Walsh School at Georgetown, uh, Kennedy School of Government. They're all going to, yeah, they, they will have practitioners who aren't necessarily Democrats, but they will largely have people Um, who are instructing the next generation of diplomats that these are people that are Democrats and that take a a leftist point of view. Once again, the academy, when we talk about it, is not we're not just making fun of college kids who don't know anything. The academy has a very prominent role uh, in this country in a whole bunch of ways, not just in in educating, but also in being the incubators and gateways to uh, or gateways to government, Um, very senior government roles. 
So, uh, with all that in mind, you got we got uh, Tillerson on Iran saying, well, he said a whole bunch of things about what Iran's doing wrong. Iran is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism and is responsible for intensifying multiple conflicts and undermining U.S. interest in countries such as Syria, Yemen, Iraq, and Lebanon, and continuing to support attacks against Israel. Iran has been behind terrorist attacks throughout the rest of the world. Whether it be assassination attempts, support of weapons of mass destruction, deploying destabilizing militias, Iran spends its treasure and time disrupting peace. Iran continues to have one of the world's worst human rights records. Political opponents are regularly jailed or executed. Iran arbitrarily detains foreigners, including U.S. citizens, on false charges. Several U.S. citizens remain missing or unjustly imprisoned in Iran. Iran's nuclear ambitions are a grave risk to international peace and security. It is their habit and posture to use whatever resources they have available to unsettle people and nations. Rex is putting the mullahs on notice here. Um, Sure, so far they have abided by the Iran deal, but the Iran deal is not good for our interests. And we've all expected that they would go along with it for a while, but at some point in the future they might begin to cheat or become brash and bold and step outside the lines. And Tillerson is just letting them know that he doesn't think the... Uh, JCPOA does enough to stop them and he's got his eyes on Iran. He is not going to let them get away with any shenanigans and this administration I think will be very happy to take the first real opportunity offered uh, based on Iranian missteps and Iranian treachery to to give them a lesson they will never forget. I'm not sure what it would be but I guess that falls in with the we don't give away the playbook philosophy that Trump and his top advisors have. Um, Our team going to hit a uh, break here back in just a few. Stay with me. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. What I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. Well, this is going to get the Trump-Russia conspiracy theorists all kinds of riled up. I was just ta- this is this seems to happen to me with some regularity on this show. I was just talking about Rex Tillerson. Rex, it's cool. Um, reminds me. Total side note before I go to Rex Tillerson. I saw that Stephen Colbert did a uh, did a spoof of of Alex Jones on his show a couple nights ago, and and he called the the radio host that he was pretending to be. In uh, as a right wing mockery, of course, I think it was like Tuck Buckford or something like that. It was right. It was yeah. It was. Don't think I didn't see that and think to myself for a second. Wow, that's that's a little close to home. Tuck Tuck Buckford or it was something like it wasn't Buckford. I forget the last name, but it was like Tuck Bradford or something. I don't know. It was it was definitely Tuck something. 
uh, the right wing radio host. So Colbert, you know, Colbert is in in my, in my kitchen with that one. But anyway, uh, let's get back to. But you know, Rex, Rex is a cool name. That's what made me think about that. I think it's a cool name. Uh, of course, means king. Like Tyrannosaurus Rex is terrible lizard king. Side note. All right, uh, Exxon. Uh, this is in Wall Street Journal. Exxon seeks U.S. waiver to resume Russia oil venture. Dun dun dun! Now everyone's gonna—they're gonna lose it on the left on this one. You're like, fuck! What? That sounds okay. So uh, the largest corporation in the world, or number one or number two? I think Exxon's still number one. Uh, but the largest corporation in the world wants to resume a Russian oil exploration venture. I think it's in the Arctic. Uh, let me read you some of the uh, the top lines here, or the the top paragraphs here, and then we'll get into what how this is going to be framed by the left, what it means, and also uh, perhaps a discussion of energy and oil and all those good things. Exxon Mobil Corporation has applied to the Treasury Department for a waiver from U.S. sanctions on Russia in a bid to resume its joint venture with state oil giant PAO Rosneft. According to people familiar with the matter, Exxon has been seeking U.S. permission to drill with Rosneft in several areas banned by sanctions and applied in recent months for a waiver to proceed in the Black Sea, according uh, to these people. Oh, sorry, to so the Black Sea uh, that we're talking about here, according to these people. The company has sought approval for access to the region since at least late 2015. The Black Sea request is likely to be closely scrutinized by members of Congress who are seeking to intensify sanctions on Russia in response to what the U.S. said was its use of cyber attacks to interfere with elections last year. Congress has also launched an investigation into whether there were ties between aides to Donald Trump and Russia's government during the presidential campaign and the political transition, etc., etc., end quote. Okay. All right, everyone. Let's, let's take a step back. A few few thoughts on this one. What are... The incre- increasing sanctions on Russia because of uh, intent to interfere in the election, effort to interfere in the election, any of the above. What is the purpose of it exactly? What do we think we're going to get? A-, an apo- a written apology from Putin? You see, sanctions are a tool for changing behavior. So I'm to assume what? That the sanctions that we would put on Russia... We already have sanctions on Russia... And those sanctions have to do with the annexation of Crimea, aggression in eastern Ukraine, and Russian intervention in Syria. But really, it's Ukraine and Crimea that are the, uh, or the Crimea, which was part of the Ukraine, Crimean Peninsula, uh, and eastern Ukraine that got all that started, right? And, and then the later you had Syria. But we want, um, we want to change Russian, Russian foreign policy. And have it more in line with what we consider international norms. That is to say that if Russia, um, which is it's never going to give up Crimea, but if if Russia stopped doing what it's doing in eastern Ukraine and if it withdrew from Assad's side in Syria, we would then respond with a, a loosening of the sanctions, perhaps even erasing the sanctions. Right? You have sanctions in place. For especially when you're dealing with a country like Russia that you can't isolate, you can't exile it from the international community. Russia is not North Korea. You don't just get to try to wall it off. We can't even do that with North Korea, by the way, which maybe we'll talk about that in a few minutes if I have time. 
but Russia can't be ignored, shouldn't be ignored. It should be dealt with from a position of strength but realism by the United States and our allies, notably NATO and European countries. Uh, so what is the what is the sanctions regime that we would have on Russia? Let's say we, we up the sanctions on Russia over the interference in the election. And I know some of you are like, Buck, the interference is, I know, I know, but the interference is hyped up and all that, fine. Isn't it fascinating? Even we had uh, McKay on before, who's a, a smart guy from the Atlantic, and he's t- we're talking about that Reuters piece, that there was a Russian think tank that thought maybe they could influence the election. Think tanks think a lot of things, my friends. It doesn't mean it means anything. Um, we We try things on the policy front. We try to influence... Uh, countries around the world. I remember even in my in my coffee fetching days at uh, various think tanks in D.C. I worked at a few think tanks. Uh, I've worked at a few think tanks, and and by the way, unless you're one of the people at the think tank paid to do the thinking, they're pretty they're pretty boring places. They tend to be if you're if you're involved in the in the making of coffee and the sending of faxes and and clerical work like that uh, for a summer, it's not the most exciting thing ever. But. Uh, why was it talking? Oh yeah, think tanks. Think tanks used to be really big on uh, democratization projects. That was one thing that you'd often hear. Though, and I'm sure there still are. And you know, I, I mean, not, there are some think tanks I really like that I'm sure do this. Foundation for the Defense of Democracies (FDD) is great. We've had FDD people on the show. Uh, but democratization is uh, is a good idea, but it's really hard in practice. So while you can talk about it, trying to affect the politics of another country just through persuasion and an information campaign, it's very, and that's for us. It's very hard to do. And I'm talking about in small, militarily and economically insignificant developing world countries, getting them to play uh, play within the lines of, uh, of transparency, accountability, democracy, free and fair elections. That's, that's tough. So influencing other countries on these matters, unless you're going to go in and depose somebody or, you know, be part of a coup, uh, which, you know, maybe that's happened in the past, too, in places. uh, That's very difficult. That Russia would have the ability to influence the U.S. election through trolls or misinformation or whatever is to dramatically underestimate the polarization of political thinking that already occurs in this country uh, and that the reach of Russian propaganda and look look at the the overt propaganda they have RT does anyone think that's moving the needle one way or the other no of course it's not uh RT is for most people i know it's kind of funny it's like oh the kremlin channel yeah that's that's where I, that's where i really want to go to get my news um there are people that i'm sure have made uh, have made electoral decisions based upon the national inquirer or or which i i have to say and this is and I, you know, I had a, I had an English, uh, English babysitter growing up who loved, loved the National Enquirer. Um, and while I do not believe that, you know, a, a, a baby with, with devil horns was born to aliens in the desert in Arizona or something, uh, the National Enquirer broke the John Edwards story, which is a, as a little digression here, if you will recall, as Democrats now are are playing the the moralizer card for the day, uh, Democrats had as their vice presidential candidate, and then at one point also, I mean, you know, he was he was on the short list uh, for 
Was it? Was he? Yeah, he was the VP candidate for Kerry, and at some in some polls was doing really well as the actual candidate for the Democratic Party. Uh, John Edwards w- was, uh, of course, involved in an extramarital affair uh, while his wife was dealing with what turned out to be terminal cancer, and went on national TV and said that when he cheated on his wife, she was in remission. Now he didn't say this offhand to somebody somewhere, and it was then repeated. That was his defense on TV. I just want to uh, uh, leave you with that for a moment. Um, but affecting our perception, the National Enquirer broke that story. By the way, that's what the National Enquirer broke that story. I know it's crazy. Not about what he said on TV, but about the John Edwards affair. Oh yeah, our media, a bunch of sleuths. They really want to get to the truth on everything. They can't find out that Edwards was. Uh, had a had a a love child and was cheating on his cancer stricken wife and with this woman who was you know like she was somebody who I don't know like a, kind of a new age hippie type from what I understand anyway point being here um, that while the National Enquirer may have affected people's points of view on things it doesn't mean that it's determining elections generally speaking forget about the John Edwards thing for a second uh, Russia Russian propaganda. And its effect on the American psyche and what we're doing is is nothing new. As I told you, the, the KGB, as part of their active measures, has been doing this for decades. Uh, and, of course, they've generally sought to use le- sympathetic leftist uh, anti-American outlets for their for their purpose. That's why RT sounds a lot like Salon.com, sounds a lot like what you get in a Bernie Sanders stump speech, depending on the day. Because it's leftism is inherently anti-Americanism when you take it to its logical ends. But maybe that's more of a discussion for another day. But the sanctions on Russia, we're going to be told that we should not move them or we can't deal with them uh, because we need to enhance them as a result of Russia's propaganda campaign during the primary or sorry, during the general election. Well, the primary as well. When does that stop? When when will we have punished Russia and the Russian people enough for Russian trolls trying to spread false information on the... Think about what the implication is here. Russia was putting out information that it wanted to put out there. And we think that the Russians may have hacked a private email account or two. And I know some of you disagree with that, but that's at least right now largely accepted within government circles as the consensus opinion. So what are we going to do about that? We're, we're going to now punish the Russian people. We're going to punish Russian company. For how long? How long does uh, Exxon have to sit on the sidelines? Because, again, not about the foreign policy sanctions. This is They want additional sanctions because of the interference during the election. Where does When does that stop? When will Russia have been punished enough? What's really the purpose? We're going to tell them no more... No more uh, trolls putting out fake information. Yeah, you know, we we've uh, we've really reached a point here. I, some of the stuff from the, and I know uh, those of you listening, some of you will know who I'm talking about here. I mean, there are the the at the forefront of the Trump Russia collusion, and investigators or pundits or whatever you want to call them are people that they almost reflexively now refer to everyone and everything as FSB. It's a Kremlin conspiracy. It has gone into the realm of delusion. Um, And so bringing us all the way back around here to Tillerson and the Exxon, uh, you know, Tillerson and the the ExxonMobil's request here 
to go back to a deal it was doing with Rosneft back in 2012, uh, this is going to be viewed by many on the left. They're going to run with this. They're going to say, see, we told you all along, Trump was bought and paid for by the Russians. Tillerson's bought and paid for by the Russians. Uh, And they've reached a point of hysteria. You look at what the deal would be here and, and what is going on. Exxon is looking for this exemption. Um, Tillerson has already, uh, he has already recused himself from Exxon-related matters. So I'm sure he'll recuse himself from that. He recused himself from the Keystone XL pipeline. But just because there's Russia, oil, Tillerson, this is going to be like a, treated like a, you know, a, a, a huge conflagration of corruption. This is what they were warning about all along. See, Kremlin, Putin, they control everything. Look at what's going on here. Uh, I'm here to tell you that this is not a big deal. Uh, Well, it's a big deal in the sense of it is a large economic venture with uh, hundreds of billions of dollars at stake over the long haul. Um, But the hawkishness that the Democrats display on all things Russia now has nothing to do with foreign policy, has nothing to do with the economy, has nothing to do with bringing jobs back to this country. It's not about what's in the best interest of America abroad or at home. It is about payback for their perceived stolen election. And this is influencing the way they report on a whole number of subjects, but most notably on anything Russia related. I mean, they... They act like Stalin's back in charge and the purges are going on and the nukes are going to hit us any day unless we take action, which is amazing because when those things were happening, it was the Democrats who were like, Stalin's not that bad. I mean, come on, workers paradise, Soviet Union. I know. Bernie Sanders, by the way, honeymooned, honeymooned in the Soviet Union. Let that one sit in there. It was great. I loved it. Lots of lots of uh, all the vodka you can drink. The left has some people who are just completely bereft um, of any uh, basic principles of, of decency in, in terms of uh, those who are in media and writing. And uh, it's hard to overstate how, uh, how stupid and hyperbolic and childish and self-indulgent uh, the progressive left in media can be at times, but this is just even I don't know. This is insane. The nation, which is as far left as it gets for something that would have to be called a publication with editors and, and some degree of readership, although not much. The nation is far left. They have a piece up um, the other poison. The other poison gas killing Syrians, carbon dioxide emissions. The subheading is, if Trump and his cronies really cared about children killed by noxious gases, they wouldn't be trying to spew ever more CO2 in the atmosphere. Look at the the moral contortions and just bizarre, delusional political leaps here. You have the horrific scenes of children being killed with sarin gas and uh, men, women and children being killed with sarin gas in Syria, a uh, sarin gas in Syria. And here you have somebody who goes, oh, I, I know I'll make a point about sarin gas and children being killed by sarin gas by saying that CO2 is the real threat. That's the real problem. And that while Trump did something about the sarin gas He's not doing something about the CO2, which, as you know, 
plants take in, they spew out, or they, through photosynthesis, they release oxygen. Um, yeah. Uh, th- there is, there's nothing that I can really put past them. I mean, the, the you know that climate change is a religious belief for people who think they are too smart for religion. Um, so that's why it, it fills that part of their brain, the the need for meaning and spirituality and connection to something greater than oneself that uh, for, well, I don't, for those of you listening, many of you, I assume it's Christianity. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a Catholic. Uh, but for the climate change crowd, it, it's a religion. It's a religious belief. And that's why it is impervious to them to any, It's a, if they think it's scientific, but it's imperfect to any scientific reason or rationale or critique. Um, but also, it's really heartless uh, what they're willing to do because they believe the world's going to end as a result of this. And so even if they are standing on the graves of dead Syrian children to make a point about Trump and CO2, the lunatics at The Nation magazine will go there and do it. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Our pal Emily Zanotti, by popular request, is back with us. She is a writer for Heat Street. Check out her latest on heatstreet.com. Emily, great to have you. Thanks for hanging out with us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Louise Mensch no longer works with you guys, right? Right. She actually hasn't worked for us since December. She said, I know this isn't about you, but I just have to say, I was doing some scrolling of the various journalists' Twitter accounts recently for what they're putting out there. She seems to think everybody works for the Russian government. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm not a, you, you don't have, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's a little like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, well, you know, I, I once uh, went to a, a a restaurant where a guy named Yuri uh, served me some some beet soup. Uh, and that that makes me apparently a Russian agent. OK. Um, anyway, it, it's a little out, it's a little out there with some of the stuff. I was just wondering. I was like, because Heat Street, I love the stuff you guys do. But uh, some interesting <laughs> stuff from Ms. Mench. Well, I want her to come on the show if she's listening or whatever. We'd love to have her on to explain how that whole everybody works, the Russian government thing works. But nonetheless, let's talk about Emily and the things you are up to. Like, for example, the sexist voters that would not elect Hillary Clinton. Someone pull over the wambulance. Chelsea Clinton was complaining about this. You wrote about it. What happened? So Chelsea Clinton did this big interview with Variety magazine. She was named as Variety's Woman of Power in New York. And she went on with Variety and said that, yes, she was on the campaign trail with her mother for most of the campaign in 2016. And she was just astounded and terribly depressed at how sexist Americans were and that she felt that that sexism was why her mom didn't win the presidency. (sighs) Isn't it amazing that on the one hand, you can have somebody out there touting being female Right. The presence of XX chromosome, which I know that in and of itself these days is is a a point of controversy for some on the left. You know, once you start getting all chromosomal on people, you got problems. Uh, But gender normative. Yeah, it's so gender normative. The (laughs) once again, you have stepped into uh, the the paramount center of patriarchy here in in the Freedom Hut. Um, But (laughs) but the 
the, the reality is on one day Hillary Clinton is saying, vote for me. I'm a, I'm a woman essentially. And then she loses right. and she's like, well, it's because I'm a woman. Um, it doesn't seem to me to be fair to expect that it's an asset when you want it to be, but when things don't go your way, oh, it's because of, you know, hashtag sexism. Right. And she was saying over and over and over again that as a woman, she possessed certain qualities that made her better able to handle foreign policy and domestic policy. She was more caring and nurturing and basically saying that women have other traits that make them better at certain things, which is basically apostasy. I mean, right now on the left, you you can't say that men and women are different, but she was embracing this as a qualifier to hold higher office. And now that she's lost, it isn't because she didn't poll for the last three months or because Robbie Mook was a terrible campaign manager. It's absolutely because she was a woman and Americans are just sexist. I was amazed that recently, and I have to hat tip Jonah Goldberg at National Review for writing about this, there was one of those Hillary speeches where she was like, you know, I'm like the cool grandma now. I have a leather jacket on. Like, you know, that whole thing. You remember that? That's what, yeah. Yes, her, her leather jacket. That's not yeah. Gilbert Godfrey. That's my Hillary Clinton. But she said there was some exchange where she was, you know, um, you know I'm not, you know, they're making some jokes or something about how maybe some women in more positions of power would help with national security. And then she got this whole thing yeah. of like, you know, I'm not going to suggest that because I'm a, you know, because I'm a woman, I'm, you know, I might be less prone to violence or aggression. And Jonah Goldberg pointed out, and he's totally true, and I, I give him full credit, that no, it, it actually is true that men, we'll, we'll take the hit on this one. We are, as a as a, uh, a group, more aggressive and violent than women are. Every study shows yeah. this. I mean, you know, go look at prison populations. Go look at assault statistics. Go look at, I mean, yeah, men are more aggressive than women. But in the leftist mind now, Hillary Clinton, the gender politics are such that suggesting that there is any distinction between men and women and the way they act or their proclivities overall is uh hashtag patriarchy uh hashtag cisgender right exactly hashtag misogyny and of course you know as women i would probably think that women who are in power would be more likely to like talk behind the back about another country and try to get a three-way phone call to hear what they think about you know (laughs) england or something like that we're just sneakier. It's not that we're less aggressive. It's just that we're sneakier about it. Yeah, men and women are different. I mean, you, you can't talk about social science and social policy without recognizing some differences in, in population. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're talking about half <laughs> half of the world and on the one side, half the world on the other. And yeah, men are more violent. This is true. Not always true, but generally speaking, you know, we're more likely to engage in aggression because there is a biochemical difference between men and women, testosterone, you know all this. Okay, let's go on. Right. Um, so yeah, Chelsea Clinton blames sexism. No surprise there. And right. Coulter is over at, uh, well, no, not over yet, but she, she was going to go over to Berkeley. Are you up on this one? Because yes. this is this is some craziness. Tell me what's going on with Anne's planned Berkeley college speech. So the college Republicans at Berkeley were going to bring in Ann Coulter as a speaker. And of course, she wanted to come because Berkeley has decided that it would rather burn down its own campus than hear an opposing viewpoint that conflicts with progressivism. And they decided that because of what happened over the weekend with the violent protests and because of what happened previously, when they've had uh, Milo was there speaking, they, they basically tried to run him off campus. They canceled her speech. But Ann Coulter is going to go anyway. And so, of course, everybody is waiting with bated breath to see how quickly Berkeley erupts in a fireball. When is it? 
I believe it's next week. Okay, next week. So there's some time. We'll, we'll reach out to Anne and see if she'll come on. I saw this, uh, and again, this is all up on Heat Street for those of you listening, um, that the university police were dealing with, quote, active security threats that they thought would compromise Coulter safety and event attendees. Um, Coulter has agreed to all the UC Berkeley security stipulations, that it will be in the afternoon, that only students are allowed to attend, that the the location will not be announced. I mean, this is like a hostage trade-off. The location will not be announced until close to the event to prevent insane protesters from burning stuff down. And uh, she's agreed to all that, and they're still concerned about her showing up. Yeah, in fact, she said that she would even bring her own private security, that they did not have to provide an additional police force to protect her in the event that she was personally targeted. And they still said, we, we just cannot take the chance. There's, we've done everything that we can. We know that these Antifa guys are going to show up and they're going to try to burn everything down and end up rampaging all over campus. So it's shut down for right now. But See, uh, by the way, I, I, don't think, I don't think they're as worried about uh, about what the Antifa protesters? It's just not. That's just not even a cool, scary name for them. But can we just agree? <laughs> no, on, like, really a- not. A- a- Antifa <laughs> sounds like it's like what I would, you know, what I would spray in the locker room to deal with strange odors or something. Like, oh, <laughs> and, you know, introducing Antifa. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. But they, uh, I-, I think, the real concern is that if the protesters act badly. And then police are in a position where they should, by any and all reasonable expectation, use some level of force against the protesters. They don't want to do that. That's what they they don't want to be caught, you know, pepper spraying or flex cuffing any of these black clad lunatics. Right. Because heaven forbid these guys actually get what they deserve from law enforcement. In fact, law enforcement was actually unmasking them. And these guys would not even show their face on camera. They were so embarrassed of the fact that they were in the Antifa. But over the weekend, when they were battling it out on Berkeley's campus, they were actually asking law enforcement to make symbolic arrests so that law enforcement could fill out all the paperwork. But these guys didn't actually have to go through the cuffing and booking and entire process that's attendant to an arrest. They didn't want to actually have to deal with any of the things attendant to an arrest. They just wanted the paperwork. Wait, I'm a symbolic arrest. What? What a is that? What is? What is? Arrest. I missed. They that. wanted. Yeah. So over the weekend, when they were battling with the Trump forces, law enforcement was offering them, and they this is what they had wanted: that they wanted a symbolic arrest, so that they would be arrested. Technically, they would fill out all the paperwork that indicated they were arrested. They would show up in court, all of the things that were attendant to a normal arrest. But they would not be cuffed and taken in and had their mug shots and all of the things that you would normally do once you're arrested because they didn't want to be troubled by that. They're just too snowflakey to handle. Ah, I see. That. So, so they, so they want, they want them, they want the martyrdom without the actual process, right? Like they, they exactly. want to seem like they're suffering for the cause minus the suffering. Right. Exactly. They don't want to have to spend the night in jail with a bunch of people who are already there. Right. People who are in jail in some cases for like for real stuff, <laughs> for not right. not not for being, uh, you know, being mean to Ann Coulter and, and spray painting the side of a building. <laughs> yeah. It's it's amazing. We'll have to see. I mean, this Berkeley thing, by the way, there, there is I will say this. 
There is no better advertisement for intellectually curious, honest, and intellectually rigorous college students. There is no better advertisement for them to at least explore conservatism as a political philosophy, <laughs> to, to at least familiarize themselves with the the other side of the argument that they're not getting from their professors on campus, then these then then the birthplace of the so-called free speech movement acting like free speech is a, a completely not even foreign concept, hateful concept. Yeah, I can tell you that at age twenty two, if somebody were trying this hard to keep something from me, I definitely wanted to see it. So maybe everybody will be hiding like Ayn Rand under their mattress and reading it at night. Were you a were you a, were you like a, out as a conservative on campus? By the way, I was. Yeah. Yeah, me too. But, 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 you weren't like some of the guests I have in the show are like I was indeed, and it was at Hillsdale College, and I'm just like, oh, <laughs> so you were a conservative, and you're walking around high fiving all your fellow conservatives. Like that's not what I, I'm talking about. Yeah, I, those of us that were part of the conservative uh, conservative underground, you know, we had to. You were one of those. Yeah, I was definitely part of the conservative counterculture. I'll yeah. tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I mean, the My friend, who was the head of the college Republicans on my campus, had the experience of a complete stranger that he had never spoken to, that had he had never done anything to, didn't even have like a Twitter battle or something, and it spilled out into real life. I mean, somebody who had no contact with just had read something he wrote in the student paper that offended him, and the guy walked up and without even addressing him or anything, while he was at a party, blindsided him and punched him in the face, because oh and, and told police it was beca- it was because of his hateful Republican views that he had done nothing that he just went up to him and punched him in the face because of that, and uh, and broke the the, guy, the kid had glasses he was he was actually a pretty small guy, uh, broke his glasses punched him right in the face. Um, I w- I was not there for those of you wondering. Otherwise there there would have <laughs> there would have been legitimate repercussions on the spot. Uh, but you know this this is just what. Uh, this is what we get, uh, and the fact. By the way, yeah. Coulter's Coulter's response to the university, and uh, reading here from again HeatStreet.com, you guys should check it out. The University of California Chancellor requests that the Oakland Chief of Police refrain from telling his men to stand down and ignore law breaking by rioters, attempting to shut down conservative speakers, as he has done in the past. Mm-hmm. These are Coulter's two stipulations, everyone. And then that was number one. Number two is that UC Berkeley announced in advance that any students engaging in violence, mayhem, or heckling to prevent an invited speaker from uh, speaking would be expelled. H- how number two is not enforced at these places, like how Middlebury didn't kick about 20 students out yeah. for what happened there, is what for me is, is it's completely inexcusable on the part of these administrations. And we find the more of these stories that we do, the more we find that professors and administrators are actively encouraging this. We've had Arizona State University, I believe, actually gave students extra credit for going out and protesting Donald Trump. We've seen people, uh, professors at Georgetown, who have said instead of going to class, you can go out and protest this conservative speaker. DePaul University has basically punished the college Republicans and uh, the Young Americans Federation rather than the students who got in the face of Ben Shapiro when he was there. It's amazing how much these conservative kids are being punished for essentially just trying to give their peers something different to listen to. Uh, I wish I could say I feel like it's going to get better, but I, mm-hmm. I believe it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I, I don't like to I, I don't like to make these kinds of predictions because it really it really would be upsetting. I think someone's going to get really hurt at one of these things. It's just inevitable. And, and even if even if there's no intention to cause grievous bodily harm, yeah. one of these antifa morons is going to throw something, 
you know, that they think is is not necessarily going to hit somebody in the head, but it's going to hit somebody in the head. And, and I think maybe that's going to be when the wake up happens, that this that these campuses need to, you know, assault is assault. Destruction of property is destruction of property. Rioting is rioting. Like just because you're 19 years old and mommy and daddy are paying 60K a year for the privilege doesn't make it OK. Right. And sooner or later, someone is actually going to get very seriously injured and these people will have to face a lot of the consequences. I, yeah, I know. It's We'll have to see. But anyway, Emily, they're playing the music, which means I'm having so much fun, I forgot that technically I have to go into breaks at some point here on the show. Emily Zanotti, everybody. She is at Heat Street. She's political editor there, EM Zanotti on Twitter. Emily, hashtag thanks so much. You're the best. No problem. Thanks. Um, by the way, if you're listening and you're a college student, why don't you see if uh, you want to bring the Freedom Hut on campus? That'd be kind of fun. Go start, go start some noise. It should be noted as we talk about all the stuff happening on uh, college campuses across the country um, that a study, this is also on on Heat Street, but there's a new study out that says that Ivy League universities have received uh, $41.59 billion in taxpayer-funded payments and benefits over six years. Uh, This is primarily through contracts, grants, and student aid. But it should be noted that these universities, which have enormous uh, resources now at their disposal, I mean, it's their their tuitions have gone up so dramatically. Uh, they have all of this money, um, and yet here we are looking at uh, Harvard has a thirty five billion dollar endowment. Brown University is a three billion dollar endowment. Brown, come on, Brown University is not not getting it done on the on the endowment side of things, but. Uh, they get all this money and they get it from the federal government and then they turn around and they say, oh, we're, we're private institutions. We don't have to abide by or uh, respect the First Amendment in any in any meaningful sense. It's like, well, actually, this starts to get a little bit more complicated because if you're getting federal dollars, you then, how much of a separation is there really from the state. And so when universities try to enforce codes of conduct, particularly speech codes, in fact, I will have you know, uh, not that any, I will have you know, that was a strange way to say that. Um, but uh, I wrote my college thesis, political science department, Amherst College, on speech codes because I could see that Amherst was going in that direction and I found it uh, very uh, troubling that. A university that well, not a university in my case, a college would abandon its core mission of allowing, well, the free pursuit of ideas. And you can't pursue ideas freely unless you can exchange ideas. You can't exchange ideas freely unless you can debate ideas. But they abandon this. They they just don't really care much about it, and um, they. Uh, get all of this money without this money these universities would largely well they would certainly not be able to do what they're doing right now and they're in something of of an arms race in terms of the uh the coddling of students the way that they try to uh, appeal to the student's sense of their own greatness from day one when they arrive uh, and they're not what look, they're not what they used to be in terms of opening up doors either. I think that's worth noting. I've told you that. And it's really true. 
an undergraduate degree from even the fanciest university, it's useful, it's helpful, but it doesn't, it's not a guarantee of anything. Uh, and the university system, I, I think, is is responsible for a lot of the otherwise just bizarre and inexplicable political positions that have become mainstream and have become the consensus opinions of those in the media and the uh, certainly, obviously, the academic establishment, but even all the way up to the top reaches of political power in the Democratic Party. They really believe in all this stuff. And when you have, you know, the, the academy is supposed to be where we have the greatest concentration of academic wisdom and knowledge and research and skill in the country. And the at least in the humanities departments of these major universities, I mean, they're just echo, tr- echo chambers of... Uh, leftist claptrap and, uh, you know, reheated, warmed over Marxism. It's really bad. Um, so that's what I, that's what I think about all of that. Uh, I'll have you know. Uh, 844-900-2825. Any thoughts on any of this or anything else? Light them up and we'll be back in just a few minutes. All right, everybody, welcome back. We are joined by David French. He's staff writer for National Review, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, an attorney and a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. David, great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Really enjoyed your piece in National Review that feminism has a ferocity problem. Tell everybody a bit about this. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you've noticed it, but I have noticed a real turn in the rhetoric uh, from feminists about what a woman should be or what's admirable in a woman. And, and what you're beginning to see is this notion that they need to be fierce. They need to be aggressive. They need to be fighters. Um, you see this all over pop culture. Um, you know, one, one of the best ways to make feminists really angry, online feminists really angry, is to hint or imply in any way that a woman needs to be rescued by a guy in any, in any circumstance, that women can can fully take care of themselves, even up to and including just, uh, you know, beating down as many big burly men as they need to beat down to get what they want. This is actually something that requires across a a lot of different shows, channels, media outlets. Uh, The suspension of disbelief is a little little too much for me with, uh, let's be honest, they they show, and this is on all different kinds, in all different kinds of movies and TV shows, 115 to 130 or 40 pound women who are, and I'm not talking about, you know, superpowers changes the game. I get that. But they're beating up 200 pound plus man after 200 pound plus man. And that's just not the way nature and physics actually work, unfortunately. But this has now become normal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I attached a couple of trailers of, of TV shows of people who do not have superpowers, who are just absolutely crushing men in hand-to-hand combat and this commercial where you see a you know a really ferocious aggressive girl she tries all these different sports and what's the last sport she's playing at the end of the commercial football football and so you're just what it's doing is it's creating this this fiction uh this notion that uh what what we really need to do is to just have girls and it's pushing girls into this this kind of this box of boyhood um, under a fiction that that they are exactly the same when they're not the same. Uh, So not only not the same dispositionally, although there are, you know, of course, many fierce girls and aggressive girls. uh, But as a general matter, uh, 
to say that that's the ideal, that that's the feminine ideal, is doing a disservice to an awful lot of people. Why does the left want to erase the gender distinctions, the biological distinctions between men and women? What's what is the purpose of this? You know, one one of the things I talked about in the piece is a lot of this really boils down to pure careerism, to ambition. Uh, So if you if you've gotten to the top of corporations, of the media, of government, you chances are you're probably more on the aggressive side, more on the risk-taking side than an awful lot of people. Um, and so, therefore, and, but and, and, but for feminists, an increasing number of feminists, it seems like that's the definition of what feminism looks like. It's the very strong, powerful tech CEO or cabinet secretary or or secret agent or you name it, whatever it is infantry officer even, that that's the paradigm of female success, whereas an awful lot of people say, you know, in a free and just society, I think what it is is it's about being able to define for yourself what you believe to be success and live according to the way you want to live. Uh, and, And feminism right now in many circumstances seems to say, well, it's a loss. It's a loss to feminism if, say, a brilliant woman wants to stay home with the kids when that's not a loss at all, if that's what the brilliant woman wants to do. And so rather than it being about choices in how you live, it's about outcomes. And those outcomes have to exactly mirror the male world in order to be valid. And I think that that's, that's where things begin to really run off, uh, run off the rails. Now, Fearless Girl has gotten a lot of, of play in the media last week because of this photo of Elizabeth Warren uh, with, with Fearless Girl I don't even really understand what Fearless Girl, and, and I know you said this in the piece, I don't really get what Fearless Girl is supposed to be fearless of or, or what, what this even means. It just seems like it's yeah. a little emblem of, you know, girl power. Okay, okay, yeah. I guess. Yeah, it's an emblem of, it, well, it's, it's become almost like this pilgrimage site uh, of where people go and pay homage to this, this idea of this fearless, unafraid girl in front of a charging bull which makes no sense in context. I mean, I was thinking in my piece, I said, if you're going to look at the whole thing as a piece of art, you have this tiny little girl in front of a wild animal. So I would call it seconds before tragedy, <laughs> before I would call it fearless girl. It, it doesn't make any sense. But what it is, is an expression of an attitude that is being idealized. And that attitude is to sort of spit in the face of adversity and uh, and and no matter what happens, you're going to fight, 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 fight. And that that is an imposition of a message on an awful lot of people who that's not how they were built to live. That is not how they want to live. And yet feminism increasingly is saying, unless you're living like that, you're not advancing the cause. Oh, Marx, uh, we're switching to Marxism for a second, everybody. Uh, Marxism and, and the writings of Marx and the early uh, implementation of it in the Soviet Union sought to erase uh, gender distinctions as part of a platform or a, a program of, of absolute equality. And in fact, in early Soviet propaganda, the uh, women were, were dressed in a way that was was supposed to show or, or not show really. It was it was supposed to downplay their femininity, their their uh, their sexuality, and this was because to be truly equal, of course, you can't have any differences between men and women. Uh, and and some of some people have taken that then to be 
uh, well, this was useful for the purposes of making everybody an, an instrument of the state, right? You you destroy gender distinctions, you destroy the family as a unit, and then everyone is just is just a, is at the the whim, the beck and call of well, in that case, the Soviet Union, but of statism in general. It seems that you're making a case here, or, or an observation at least, that it's not a not deep seated ideological reasons for this uh, feminism, this this current state of feminism, but it's more a utilitarian argument. So it, it's it's a power struggle thing. It's useful yep. for people to take this philosophy. It's not rooted in Marxism and, and absolutist equality, or is it? Well, you know, I think it, it might be, but I think for, for at least some of the more deep thinkers in it, but I think for the sort of the mass acceptance of it, it's, well, this is how you succeed. And so uh, what we're trying to do, and the, and the essence of the idea is, and, and what, the, what the attempt is to do, is to make men less aggressive and women more aggressive. And so you kind of take men and make them more stereotypically female, take women and make them more stereotypically male, and you begin to achieve some sort of equilibrium. But, you know, people are not blank slates like that. You just, it's not like that you, you come out of the womb uh, the vast majority of people, they don't come out of the womb just a blank slate with different kinds of genitalia. <laughs> That's not the way human beings work. We're wired differently. And, and the fact that we have different wiring has played itself out for thousands of years in human civilization. And so that's what the feminists are running up against. Now, again, that's not to say that some women aren't wired to be pretty darn ferocious and, and some women aren't wired to be pretty darn aggressive. And a fair society says, hey, you know, uh, people should have an equal opportunity to succeed in fields where they're able. I don't think that includes ground combat, for example, but an equal opportunity to succeed in fields where they're able. And certainly some guys are less aggressive. They're far more gentle. And a just society says, hey, we're not going to impose upon you an idea that says that you have to be aggressive just because you're a guy. But at the same time, reality gets a vote here. And there's a reason why in those professions and then those fields that often require an enormous amount of physical strength or uh, that require an enormous amount of risk-taking or uh, ambition, that you tend to see more guys in those. Um, and, and that's not just because of sexism. Yeah, it, it is because of, in part of testosterone as well. There are biological differences. I know you know this, but we're, we're being told increasingly that that the the people that always talk about science are very anti-science when it comes to gender and biochemistry and the role that all this has uh, in our day-to-day lives and and much of what goes on around us but speaking of feminism uh, before i let you go david uh here's one reason why the dems still love hillary why, why do democrats still love hillary you know you had you had chelsea in a in a unintentionally comic cover of uh, one of those magazines. I forget which one it was oh, earlier in the week. Yes. Which one was, was it? Uh, Variety? Oh, I can't remember which one it was. Yeah, it was on one of them. Whatever. It, what, whatever. It, the photo, though, is just, it's just not, it's not helping anybody. Uh, no. why, why do the Democrats still cling to Clint, uh, Clinton, the Clinton brand? Well, I mean, I got to answer it by saying I'm, I was wrong in a pretty serious way about something in my assessment before the election, I I wrote that if Clinton loses, the Democrats are just going to kind of drop her like a hot potato. Um, And that's not occurred. I mean, there's this sort of almost reverence that surrounds her in some quarters. And and here's what I think. I think that if you're looking at the 2016 election 
it's na- it's human nature, and and look at the way the left has portrayed this as the triumph of evil over good. Um, they there is an awful lot of incentives to whitewash Hillary Clinton to not look in the mirror and say, man, we gave America a really tough choice. Because if you do that, you kind of have to climb off that moral high horse. You kind of have to climb down from all that rhetoric of hashtag the resistance, casting yourself as this agent of pure good against an instrument of pure evil. Because uh, if you look at reality, the reality is America was served up two candidates who are the least liked candidates in the history of unfavorability polling. And the Democrats did that, and they did that with their eyes open. So I think there's some incentive here to whitewash history a little bit, to whitewash Hillary a little bit, to make her better than she was, because by doing so, you get to continue the crusade. Instead of coming to America and saying, man, we learned we we messed up. Well, do do we you think? Well, I haven't read it yet, but I've seen some excerpts, and and certainly it's it's getting a fair amount of press. This book on on the Hillary Clinton campaign. Right. My sense, and I, and I haven't read it, and so this is this is like I'm basing my movie review off the movie trailer, which I which I know you, you shouldn't do. But my sense is that part of this will likely be, and I should read it now because I'm talking about it. Um, that it wasn't Hillary uh, and it wasn't her ideas. It was just the campaign apparatus that faltered. <laughs> I'm guessing that's yeah, what it says. Well, there, there's, it's interesting, the coverage that you're seeing of it. Again, I haven't, I've got the book. I haven't read it. So I'm just reflecting on the coverage of it. The coverage of it is the first time I'm really seeing a more hostile turn towards her. Because one of the, one of the arguments that people made is that, well, she, she was hyper qualified to be president from all, you know, a lot of throughout the campaign. We kept hearing, oh, look at what a good campaign she's running. And then you begin to see that she was doing just uh, according to the book uh, that or according to the coverage, you know, incompetent decision after incompetent decision and had too many chefs in the kitchen, so to speak. And, you know, it starts to look a lot less like a valiant doom crusade and it looks looks a lot more like a sort of a bumbling clown car and that might sour democrats on her a little bit more but but is it is it a a failure uh again that brings me back to (laughs) sorry i'm speculating based on just my my gut feeling from the headlines (laughs) i've seen on this i I need to read the book i know you've said you've read it and i'm (laughs) we're we're both now giving a movie review of a movie we haven't seen but i just (laughs) would wonder if if it's if it's a way of protecting the Democrat Party's platform and message by finding, okay, Hillary made bad decisions about campaign staff or about how to campaign, but it's never the fault of the ideas. (laughs) And and, and also, I think it hands off uh, or or gives some uh, a bit of a high five and a hug to those Bernie Sanders supporters out there. The Democratic Party needs to rally behind them going forward. Well, there's no question that the coverage of it, again, you know, I'm reviewing the coverage, not the book. The coverage of it is more process oriented. Like, look how she had 10 people fashioning a speech. Uh, Look how she spent time away from the campaign trail. Look how and that isn't that isn't, as you're saying, focused on ideas. It's focused on execution and process, which is what political reporters focus on more than anything else, typically. And so I think that there might be some sense of ultimately some sense of comfort that they take from that, that they say, look, our ideas weren't rejected. Just this person was rejected. Same ideas, different person, different result. Um, and that, you know, that might be something that is taken away from this, but 
it remains to be seen. But all the takeaways so far are, oh, wow, we didn't realize how bad off this campaign was. We had no idea how dysfunctional this campaign was. And that seems to be the, the, the dominant narrative right now about it. Chelsea Clinton is going to run for office, and if she does, will be a successful candidate. What do you think? Let me put it this way. If she runs for office, it will be probably in one of the safest Democratic seats in the United States of America against uh, against possibly hand-picked opposition. Yeah, she might run. If she runs, I bet she wins. But I think she has a pretty low ceiling on her, uh, you know, I may eat these words, uh, but I think she has a pretty low ceiling on her uh, political career. David French is staff writer for National Review. Check him out on Twitter at David A. French. David, thanks so much for joining. Great to have you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right, team. Uh, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, 844-900-BUCK. And we're going to hit a quick break. Oh, also go to Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. By the way, if you're listening, please click follow there. We'll be posting a lot of stuff in the days ahead. Uh, we'll be right back, team. So Colbert did this thing. Uh, he was making fun of Alex Jones, who is having some trouble uh, in family court, I think it is, custody battle, which is, oh, by the way, it's always rough. Um, but he's making fun of Colbert. Uh, he's making, rather, Colbert, who took over for David Letterman, is making fun of Alex Jones, who in turn has once or twice taken some shots at, uh, not in turn, but as an aside, has taken some shots at, at yours truly, because um, I was allegedly a CIA plan to take over conservative media, which sounds awesome. <laughs> let's, let's let's wish that were true. Uh, but he created this character, Colbert, who mocked Jones, created this character. Um, and my name is Buck Sexton. And the character that Colbert created was, um, wait, I want to make sure I get it right. Cause I, it was Tuck Buckford. Uh, play it. For many years, I played a satirical right-wing character, okay? This happened to me all the time when I played my right-wing character, talk radio host, Tuck Buckford. (laughs) I think we have a clip. Jim? Welcome back to Brain Fight. (laughs) Listen. Listen, people, the liberals want to tattoo Obama logos onto the skin of Christian babies, okay? All right, you get and the idea. He's, want- he's doing his he's doing his, his Tuck, Tuck Buckford impersonation there. Uh, anyway, I actually usually don't think Goldberg's funny at all. It's just, why has he got to make fun of a, of a conservative radio host with the first name Tuck? You know, that's just it's a little, little, close, little close to home there uh, when your name is Buck. Uh, so... Anyway, I just thought that was kind of amusing. Uh, please do check out BuckSexton.com. Site is up and running. We're posting there throughout the day. I will be writing there. We might even be getting some guest friends of the show to write in on occasion, too. Uh, and we'll be getting a newsletter together. Um, if you don't already, please subscribe on iTunes. Go to Buck Sexton with America now. Um, and you can listen on the iHeart app whenever you want, on demand. Uh, if you're ever out of radio range, you can always listen on the iHeartRadio app. Uh, that's going to be it for tonight's show. Excited to hang with you all tomorrow. Already have a lot of fun segments and interesting stuff to talk to you about. Until then, my friend, Shields High.